Welcome to On The Mark, a podcast series that explores the effect on various businesses of the COVID pandemic and how companies have managed to survive and thrive during these difficult times and beyond. I am your host, Howard Mark Rubin, and this podcast series came about as a result of my realization that as a partner in the law firm of Getz Fitzpatrick, representing businesses in a wide variety of industries, that this pandemic has not only changed the way businesses have worked short-term, but in many instances have permanently changed the way business was being done. It has such a diverse effect on industries and the people who work in those industries that I felt it was important to address what is the reality, what is the fiction, and what the future holds. Sponsoring this series of podcasts is the Strategic Forum, which was founded in 1999 in New York City and expanded in 2004 to South Florida. It is an organization consisting of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders who believe in forming deep business and personal relationships based on mutual respect and trust and continual learning and intellectual enrichment. Current membership of the Strategic Forum represents a diverse group from public and private businesses and organizations. Today, uh, we have a topic that's a little bit different uh, from what we normally have. Normally, we have businesses. This is a charity, and I guess charities are businesses, too. They have uh, a client base, and they have uh, to service people, Um, but um, uh, we're going to explore how this pandemic has affected uh, charities, particularly in New York, and we have with us uh, two great guests that are going to be talking about the effect of one specific uh, charity that they're involved in. And I, I'm also uh, knowledgeable about to some extent because I also, for those of you who know, uh, I'm president of a uh, charitable foundation that supports this uh, this uh, charity. It's called the HOPE Program. And we have with us Irene Branch, who's the Chief Development and, Envi- and Evaluation Officer for the HOPE program. She's been with them since 2011 and has been instrumental in HOPE's nearly 300% growth through the launch of signature fundraising events, achievement of prestigious grants and awards, procurement of new government contracts and other initiatives. Uh, Irene will tell us a little bit what the HOPE program does uh, in a moment. Uh, We also have with us a good friend of mine, Paul Newman, who uh, is not only very a successful businessman as as president, or he calls himself chief inspiration officer of Newman's Kitchens, one of the leading caterers in New York. He's the past board chairman of uh, the Hope Program and a present board member of the program. And uh, he's the guy that got me involved in, in, in the program and introduced me to the program, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I know uh, Paul is uh, very instrumental in, in getting a lot of people involved in the, in the great work that the Hope Program does. So, uh, Paul and Irene, welcome to On the Mark. Thank you. Howard, thank you for having us. So let me start off with Irene so people have an idea of your specific charity. Tell us what the HOPE program is and what it does. Yeah. um, Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Um, The HOPE program's mission is to connect New Yorkers with the workplace. We've been in business since 1984, um, and our singular mission is to prepare folks for new jobs and provide them the resources and networks to get there. We serve New Yorkers of all ages, so 18 through, we recently had somebody who celebrated a brand new job and the receipt of his Medicare card on the same day, so no upper limit to the, to the age of the folks that will serve all genders and all boroughs of New York City. We provide training for general career readiness, uh, so if folks don't know what field they want to pursue or, or sort of want just general preparedness for the workforce. We have programs for that. And then we also have a a handful of programs that specialize in green construction and maintenance. So solar installation, horticulture, 
rooftop coding to improve energy efficiency, um, to really preparing people for the job of tomorrow. Well, I think that's very important because uh, I think that uh, because of this pandemic, it's uh, affected a lot of people's employment and uh, people are going to have to find new fields to work in uh, as we become a more virtual society or world. And uh, I think the, the need for the whole program and programs like that are only going to only going to increase, and that's one of the reasons that uh, my foundation, the Citroen Foundation, uh, you know, enjoys working with you and, and feels that your work is so important. Uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about? Because I know that you're involved in um, uh, getting people involved in the fundraising part of it uh, mm-hmm. to somewhat. What has been the challenge? I mean, you can't used to have these great events, these live events with uh, hundreds or thousands of people. You can't do that anymore in the last year. What has been the challenge in, in trying to raise money for the program in the last year? And how have you adapted to that? Yeah, so Irene and I were instrumental in creating what had become our signature event, which was called the Taste of Hope, which had in the last last time we did it, I think in 19 raised about $400,000. So that's been a significant blow to the fundraising. What I've witnessed with Irene and her team is an incredible ability to pivot and find new sources of money to replace what we lost through a taste of hope and also discover and reinvent some of humor for hope was obviously an in-person event. We did it virtually this past year. And Irene, how much did we raise with the virtual version of Humor for Hope? We raised $85,000, which um, actually was more money than that event had ever raised. It's sort of our, it's sort of our smaller, more, uh, more introductory fundraiser. And, it, and, it, uh, and so $85,000 was actually huge for that event this year. It was incredible. Right. So, so. Howard, one of the things I've witnessed, and we can talk about this as well, is not only the ability for Hope to pivot on fundraising and find new sources of revenue, uh, but also an an ability to pivot the entire organization, which Irene can address. As a business person, we were severely impacted. As a not-for-profit, Hope was severely impacted. But their ability to go virtual, train students, keep the momentum and the energy up has been just a remarkable thing for me to witness. Well, you mentioned before that the Taste of Hope, which I attended once and it was a great event, uh, raised $400,000 and you didn't have that last year. How did you That's replace right. those funds? How did you replace those monies? I mean, maybe you want to address that. Yeah, I'll jump in. So I actually, I'll never forget. It was uh, uh, Friday, March 13th. I had gone to the office um, and actually the invitations for our 10th annual A Taste of Hope arrived in the office on that day. And we were getting ready to drop it in the mail to, to Hope's entire community. Um, we got on a call with our board committee who said, let's pause for a minute on this. We don't know what's going to happen. And then we ultimately decided um, that we weren't going to drop those invitations at all. And so um, with our board and our committee and our staff, we, we got really creative and we said, well, we can't do an event, but we still think people are feeling generous let's pivot this to a campaign that we call Heroes of Hope. Um, And so we featured Hope graduates who were working on the front lines, folks who were, um, you know, working in hospital settings, working in maintenance settings, keeping keeping facilities clean, people who are, you know, still out there doing all the hard work that our city really relied on. 
Um, we pivoted to a campaign that was very, very focused on the clients that we serve. Um, and it was incredible. Our board really stepped up. Our community of supporters really stepped up. But we ended up raising about $450,000 wow. um, through a print and digital campaign, uh, you know, phone calls and text messages, um, lots of follow-up, lots of thanks. Um, but our, our community really, really showed up. For us in that time and has continued to do so. So in the, and hopefully we will soon be a post-COVID uh, world that we're getting back to normal and we'll actually have events. Do you see you continuing to do uh, virtual events? Do you think virtual events will still be part of your fundraising? It's a good question. You know, we're starting to have that conversation with, um, with the development committee and the board as we plan for our next fiscal year. Um, so I'll tell you, you know, a lot of a lot of our peer nonprofits have gone to this virtual event format where, you know, you get a few hundred people on Zoom and you sort of do the do the sort of feel about the impact of the organization and you still have an honoree and it sort of mimics the in-person event but on a Zoom screen. Um, we actually opted for our spring event. We opted not to do that. As Paul mentioned, we did do it for the comedy show, but for the event that would have that would have been happening right now, we we opted not to do that. We figured Lots of people are vaccinated. It's beautiful outside. Um, fewer and fewer people want to sort of be inside in the evening watching watching things happen on Zoom. So we are repeating our digital and print and uh, social media campaign um, for the same format that we used last year. So we, we're not doing that, that virtual event thing. Um, and I'm hearing of lots of peers who are, who are already planning their fall events. So I... What I see for the future is that people are going to want to be in person again. I think we really miss the connection, the ability to talk to clients who were impacted by the work of the nonprofit, um, to be together, to celebrate our communities. So I think that we'll be moving more towards in-person events, but that there will always be that hybrid option. So there will be better technology in the room, um, and we'll be able to stream these types of things online so that uh, people from afar or people who don't want to leave the house um, are able to attend. Uh, but I, I see us sort of leaving behind the all virtual events. And, and Paul, as as someone who, that would be good news to you to have in person events because your your main business is uh, catering. Uh, do you see that in you in 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 the world generally as people are anxious to get back into in person events rather than virtual events? Because an issue that I've had uh, with some of my clients that do event they do event planning is that some of the big companies, uh, they've done virtual events virtually among their their employees and their people, and they're saying, well, why should we have everyone travel around the country to to a location? We can do it for, for a fraction of the cost and, and uh, do it as a virtual event, but it's, of course it's not the same thing. What, what are you finding with that, Paul? I think there's going to be demand to get back face-to-face for fundraisers, for conferences and meetings. I think there will be There'll be a long-term effect of people traveling less or going to conferences, but there's a huge difference between being virtual and being face-to-face. And, and I think that we we are social beings, we are social creatures, and we need to look one another in the eye, shake hands, read facial expressions, read body language. Very, very hard to do virtually and and we're hungry to i think people are hungry to get back to being together to celebrating things look at i mean look at the sporting events that are going on now 
that Madison Square Garden was filled last night and people are just crazed to celebrate and rejoice and be in one another's company. So I see I see things coming back. And and Irina, you know, what you're doing is um is an area where the, the demand I think is going to increase so much. We have unemployment is so much higher. There are industries, I think because of more people working virtually uh, people are going to be displaced from their jobs, what they've been doing for a long time in some industries, and they're going to need retraining and they're going to need new jobs to um, uh, to go to. Uh, and I would think that uh, you're going to be busier than ever. And I would think that the whole program <laughs> is going to be looking to expand its programs. There's going to need more money and more people and more resources uh, in the future. Is that how you see it? Uh, yeah, I absolutely think so. You know, you're talking about sort of a more virtual workforce, and and that's something that we have to grapple with uh, right off the bat. You know, we we serve a population of folks um, with a wide range of digital literacy skills, but um, lots of them walk through our doors not knowing how to use a Zoom screen, not knowing how to use a Google Calendar, sort of not having the the fundamental skills to even access a training like ours remotely. So we have to sort of re envision how we even offer our training. Um, we are giving, as you know, because uh, you're, you're, you're supporting that in part, um, we're putting laptops and mobile hotspots in, in the hands of folks who wouldn't have access to that technology at home, helping to address the digital divide. And we are also doing a two to three day digital literacy pre-training. So before our classes even start, we're teaching folks like how to get on, how to use a calendar, how to use a Zoom screen, just the absolute basics to be able to even access training. Um, and that'll continue to be part of what we do. We, we, we believe that we'll be in a hybrid place. So we're doing um, a mix of remote and in-person training, which will actually, as you're saying, Howard, will allow us to expand our programming, right? One of our limits to how many people we can serve is space. How much, how much real estate, how much classroom space, how many folks can we fit in those classrooms? And um, because we have been successful in remote training and we're going to look towards these hybrid hybrid ways of getting people upskilled and ready for the workforce will be able to serve more and more people. Uh, we're actually looking at 50% growth in the year ahead. Um, and, and that's in part to meet the huge demand that we absolutely see coming out of this, um, out of this past 14 months. Um, and in part because, you know, I talked earlier about how hope does a lot of work in the green, um, in the green job space. And there's going to be a huge demand for, people to be trained in new technologies um, and and in new, you know, in new ways of working in the environmental sector. Uh, we're seeing demand at the state level. We're seeing potential legislation at the federal level, which will be infrastructure and a new greener economy. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for us to really bolster our um, our services and to meet the demand in that space as well. Do you, do you see greater opportunity for uh, government uh, assistance, government grants, government uh, programs that uh, that they'll allow you to run and fund those programs, or you're still reliant a lot on uh, private uh, donations. Yeah, hope is about fifty fifty in terms of our split, um, which uh, we're actually really proud of. It, it, it makes us well diversified. It helps us to weather a storm like the past year to not be overly reliant on one source or one um, or one type of funding. So we're we're about fifty fifty in our funding pool. We are seeing more investments in um, in green job training, um, in particular, especially at the state level. Uh, we are doing some work to push New York City a little bit um, in terms of 
um, funding workforce development more explicitly. So we're, you know, asked of all of our peers in the workforce sector led by the New York City Employment and Training Coalition, which is our the advocacy organization for, for organizations like Hope in New York City. Uh, we're really pushing New York City to see how important job training programs are going to be to an equi- equitable recovery for our city. So we're not gonna we're not gonna rebuild unless we get the folks at the absolute bottom of the career ladder upskilled and ready to get back to work. And Paul, as a as a former uh, board chair and board member, uh, I'm sure that you have uh, an opinion as to where the future growth uh, should be focused for the whole program. Uh, where do you see that that going? Which which job areas? How people are going to be trained? Uh, what do you think should be done there? Well, I, we've been focused. We've been shifting our focus to green jobs um, because we feel like that matches up both to the jobs we'd like to see people get and the direction we think the economy and the world needs to go in. So there's been a focus on green jobs. I think that one of the challenges for hope is that digital literacy, many, many of our students are digitally challenged. And many of the jobs we traditionally have trained for are jobs, uh, service jobs, not necessarily digitally important, but every job requires digital literacy now. And more and more jobs will be digitally based as the economy, some sector of the economy has gone virtual. So I think that hope is has been moving in the direction um, of green and digital, but there's going to be a, a increased focus on that. And Irene, can you comment if I've missed anything? Uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think a hundred percent that every job is a digital job. You know, you can't, you can't apply for a job anymore without uh, the ability to navigate the internet and online job applications. Um, you know, I hope I clock in and out every day using an app, uh, manage all of my payroll documents using an app. I know that's the way the world is going. Um, and that's, you know, our, our, the folks who walk through our doors are going to need those skills just to access absolutely any job. Um, so I think that captures it. One thing that makes hope stand out in this space um, a little bit is that while we're moving towards sector-based training, like in the green sector, we are not completely abandoning general career readiness. So we, as I mentioned at the top of the half hour, um, we have a program that prepares people sort of for general careers. You know, if you want to go into maintenance or animal care or food, um, whatever it is, we're, we're ready to prepare you for that. And we remain really committed to that because we don't believe that folks who are living in poverty need to be funneled into a sector without without some agency and some choice. So our what we call Hope Works, or I jokingly call sort of the liberal arts major of the Hope Program, um, gives folks an opportunity to explore. Um, and in that way, we're going to explore with our job seekers um, what's out there, what they're, you know, how we can prepare, best prepare people for those sectors and and really um, continue to watch the labor market shift and evolve. Right. And and so if you stay, take a step back and look at hope, one of the things I was attracted to and that I still admire and, and love about hope is it's really a very humanistic approach to preparing someone for the workplace. And our populations have, for various reasons, not been active members of the workplace. So a lot of what we do is we prepare them emotionally, psychologically, logistically to be 
successful in their jobs. So that doesn't change. But what is shifting and what we always have our eye on is where will the jobs be? What sectors are we are going to deliver living wage jobs to our graduates? And how do we get them ready to interview, uh, be hired, and then support them post-hiring to make sure they're successful? You know, I, I couldn't imagine not having uh, a smartphone and not having access to computers. And uh, I just I couldn't imagine it. But I would think that a lot of your clients uh, don't have that type of access. Do you provide them with devices so that they can connect to a digital world? Because in the virtual, the virtual world that we live in now, I would think that that's an essential device. Otherwise, they can never compete. They can never you know, get out of the, the poverty uh, without having their own device. Do you provide that for them? We do now as a result of COVID. Uh, was not the, uh, prior to COVID, we, we, we've always had an investment in digital literacy at Hope. But prior to COVID, we had uh, we, we still have actually computer labs at our, um, in our facilities where we do explicit digital literacy training. Of course, over the past year, we couldn't bring people into those computer labs. So we have been doing tech drop-offs. Uh, early on, our, um, our intrepid digital literacy director would mask up and go out into the community and knock on people's doors and hand them laptops. Uh, we're now inviting people into our facilities to pick those up and, and engage with us that way. But um, yeah, it's about, uh, about a half to three quarters of, of the folks who come to us require um, require laptops and, and Wi-Fi hotspots in order to access our programming and job applications and all the other things like you're talking about, Howard, you know, uh, medical records, financial records, you know, I, I can't imagine, I can't do anything without the, without uh, my technology. And right. so we're, we're helping to bridge that divide. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it comes with, a, it comes at a cost. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a large expense if we're going to serve 650 people in the year ahead, you know, that's, that's 300 to 400 um, devices that we're, that we're putting into people's hands. And so um, we're, we're proud to do it. We're happy to be able to provide those resources to our community. Um, but when you think about, you know, the core question here is like, how did COVID shift our business model? Well, in part, it added a huge expense line in terms of the need of having to purchase technology equipment to get to our clients. Yeah, I would think that, that COVID's affected you in a negative way, in, in, in two ways. One, it made fundraising more difficult. And two, it's made the uh, the client base that you're servicing uh, more needy and, and larger in, in, in size. Uh, looking into the future, do you see this uh, continuing? That uh, how do you address the the increased need, the increased need for fundraising, the increased need for uh, servicing a, a client base, and maybe shifting to a more virtual world and providing more services? How do you do you have a Paul, let me ask you, does, does, does the whole program have a, a plan? Are they putting together a plan on how they're going to be dealing with this? Oh, we've had, we've worked through a series of five-year plans. Right. There's nothing, what was... COVID what, was not in them. Right, yeah, yeah. COVID what's was the, what's, the, what's the famous <laughs> line, I don't know if it's a Mike Tyson line, you know, yeah. everything's great until you get punched in the face. Right. Right, right, so, right. you know, so whatever five-year plan we had, has been set aside. I'll go back to what I said before. I am in awe of how Jennifer Mitchell, the executive director, Irene Branch, and the team have found, have turned lemons into lemonade and, and done things that I just didn't think 
were possible. So is there a plan? There's there's a plan, and then there's the response to COVID being integrated into the larger plan. And and yeah, I would um okay, just add, you know, I when Paul talks about the response, you know, I think our program team has done an extraordinary job. You know, if you had asked me last February, could the hope uh, instructional staff teach remotely and be equally effective? I I would have said no way. <laughs> they're they're hugely talented, super compassionate adult basic educators, but um, this isn't the space that we've been in. We haven't had to use technology in this way. We haven't had to engage classes of 20 strangers um, and build community and trust and investment and buy-in over a Zoom screen. Um, and I, I would have told you that it wasn't possible. Um, and I've been really blown away. You know, you go to a, you go to our class graduation ceremonies and people um, people are crying about sort of the transformation that they've experienced in six, 10, 12 weeks. They have inside jokes and they rely on the hope staff for support. And it's just a, this incredible sense of community that, um, that I still, you know, even 14 months later, I'm really um, blown away by every time I see it about just how our staff has been able to, um, to have an incredible impact, uh, even over Zoom. And, and where do you see, uh, if you had a crystal ball, the whole program being <laughs> five years from now? Uh, in terms of the services they provide, in terms of the scope. Uh, COVID will be a memory. People will say, oh, remember we used to wear those masks? It'll be a long, distant memory. <laughs> and where do you see the program going in the future? And has what you're doing been affected by COVID in the future? In other words, I guess an acceleration in the uh, digital world certainly had an effect on what you're doing. But where do you see that in five years yeah. from now? I think, you know, this year we served about 400 to 450 New Yorkers. I think in five years we'll be um, serving a thousand plus new new folks who walk through our doors in search of jobs, training and placement and related services. So I think our services will, uh, will more than double um, in that time responding to the need. I think we will be more hybrid. Uh, we are, we were entirely in person with no remote programming whatsoever. We are now in almost entirely remote. And I think that we'll find that middle ground, which will help us to reach new audiences. Um, you know, in the past, it's been difficult for um, somebody who maybe is underemployed but works during the day. They can't access hope programming in our current model, but in a future model, they'll be able to access it remotely um, and maybe asynchronously. And so, you know, we'll be able to reach new audiences. The single mom who can't afford daycare to attend training. Um, until she gets that job, she'll now be able to access hope programming remotely and will be able to engage. So I think the future is more digital, uh, more access to, to folks that, that wouldn't have been able to join hope programming in the future. Um, and I think what we've seen uh, this year is just more, even more support services. I think hope, uh, Paul was describing how hope is really a comprehensive and humanistic program. So we don't just do job training. We're not just helping you with your resume. Uh, we do the digital literacy, financial literacy. We help you open a bank account. We have mental health services. We do yoga classes on Fridays because we think that's just one more tool in your tool belt to manage the stresses of life and work and to help you succeed. Um, and part of that is our case management services, which we are, which we had just started right before COVID hit, um, sort of fortuitously, and which we're now expanding, um, really realizing the connection between you know, folks are struggling with um, with housing insecurity and food insecurity um, or, or all of those related factors. 
it's going to be really difficult to learn new job skills and to thrive in a job. And so um, we're, we're doing more explicit and formal case management. And I think that will continue to grow um, as part of our services over the, in the coming years. And if somebody wanted to, um, if any of our listeners wanted to learn more about the whole program or maybe uh, contribute or become uh, benefactors of the whole program, can you give them some contact information as to who they should contact? Yeah, you can call me directly, um, Irene Branch, um, 347-773-4591. Our website is www.thehopeprogram.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, We're talking about a TikTok page, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, So you can find us on the the more traditional social media platforms. and if I can just add, we're, we are rated four stars by Charity Navigator. So that's the highest rating they give right. to not-for-profits. Right. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a great charity, and uh, they're doing some uh, tremendous work in the area I call economic empowerment. That's how I yep. refer to it in, in my world. Um, but uh, I want to thank you both for participating in this. I think it's been very uh, informative, and I, and I want to commend both of you for the great work uh, that you you're done in helping uh, New Yorkers get through this uh, this difficult time and and beyond. And um, I want to thank you. Is there anything else that either of you want to add that I left out that you want to get out there? Well, on behalf of the board and the the um, students and the staff at Hope, I want to say thank you to you and the Citroen Foundation for your incredibly generous support. It means a lot to us. And um, thank you for having us on the broadcast and giving us a chance to tell the story. It's, it's my pleasure. Well, thank you, Irene and, uh, and Paul, and I will speak to you soon.